Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ken Leon joins us now in banking, of course, helping out always uh, with CFRA on this historic day of Jane Fraser taking over for Michael Corbett at City, and she has moved many, many a time. Ken Leon, were you surprised by this announcement? Uh, there's always a surprise when you have a change of leadership of this magnitude, and it, it is historic because we have a world-class executive, a woman, taking over one of the largest banks in the world. Uh, this is exciting. She's got a stellar resume. Um, what mm-hmm. Jane Fraser, she's a known entity. So, you know, City internally is not a troubled bank. But, Tom, in all our conversations, of course, with the impact of COVID-19, you know, banks are just fighting their way up in terms of a troubled oh. consumer market. Before Paul jumps in here in the short time, was Mr. Corbett forced out? I don't have insight into that. Um, you know, clearly we've seen difficulty in terms of uh, cities' performance, especially in the consumer area, which is one of the strengths of Jane Fraser. Uh, additionally, you know, for investors looking at share price movement, you know, City has come back from its March lows, but it's really been about around $50. Um, you know, we think that's an, an opportunity. Really, it's not Michael Corbett's fault, but there's two factors that drive City's outlook and why we have a buy recommendation. The U.S. economy, going back to a normal market, gains City for credit cards. And City, unlike any other large U.S. bank, is a global play on strength in Southeast Asia or Latin America. Those markets come back, City's going to outperform. Uh, what Jane Fraser brings to the table was CEO in both Southeast Asia and Latin America. So I think the board is thinking about we've got a tough road over the next six months uh, trying to get back to a new normal, and Jane Fraser has skill sets to bring on a new generation of leadership. Uh, Ken, what do you think's at the top of Jane Fraser's to-do list here? I think it's bringing greater integration of, of the businesses, particularly um, on the consumer side, which should be easy for her. Uh, we just haven't seen uh, strength uh, across the board in consumer. For example, uh, peers like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Morgan <clears throat> Stanley, very strong in wealth management. City really hasn't put a strategy and a business together to compete with that. And that's a big growth opportunity for City. Secondly, uh, obviously, there's a sensitivity to regulation, but risk-taking. Where do you want to take risk? Is it the capital markets? Is it looking at specific areas of commercial loans? Or possibly, do you want to make an acquisition in the U.S.? Do you know, even, as large as City is, they're only in like four states, New York, Florida, California, and they're in South Dakota because that's where they do all their credit card processing. So, Ken, one of the obviously the, the key issues with this uh, announcement is it's uh, uh, the, f- the first woman to the top of a, a major global investment bank. Give us your sense of 
how Wall Street or financial services or the sectors that you cover, how are they doing on diversity from your perspective? It, they've been getting a lot of pushback for many, many years. I think it's top of the list for the whole industry, and um, we have certainly seen examples of it, but there's more that can be done. And when you think of the C-suite, where the major decisions are made for an entire enterprise or bank, um, this is a, a great step. I think we're going to see more of this. You know, again, look at, we're talking, Jane Fraser was a McKinsey partner. She was at Goldman Sachs M&A. She's covered the globe for City with the experiences I've mentioned, and she's a senior leader today. What a terrific opportunity uh, for City to have her lead the bank. Well, uh, and tru- I don't want to interrupt, but we're going to run out of time here, Ken Leon, and thank you so much for coming on in short notice. Did they make this change because they were afraid of losing her? I mean, is this no different than the starting pitcher for the New York Mets? Well, given the current environment and what needs to be done for City, it reminds me of uh, an interview of the founder of Netflix, which is who is right for the times we have and where we're going to yeah. lead. Uh, so I think, you know, after eight years, Mike Corbett, you know, he was basically City was a punching bag six, eight years ago, yep. not able to make the bank stress test. Bottom line is, uh, I think this is a smart move by the board, and Michael Corbett's a gentleman and did a great job. Ken Leon, thank you so much on short notice. Just a beautiful overlay. Folks, that's what we love to do on Bloomberg Surveillance. We get perspective from Karsten Breski. We're thrilled that he could join us uh, this morning. Karsten, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Good. Wonderful to have you with us. I guess it's as expected, but there was the money question right away on Euro. And this goes down to the need for continental and global trade for Europe to hold up the economy. Can world trade save the day for Europe? I think this, this time around, it's not going to be global trade saving the European economy, but it has to come from, from domestic demand. And uh, that there, there are still so many problems out there outside of the euro, eurozone. Look at the U.S., look at the U.K. Um, so this is, I think, why we also heard Lagarde only talking about the impact on inflation. <clears throat> she didn't mention the euro as a concern for the ECB's growth outlook. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Of course, it is the, the growth outlook. But to me, as I mentioned to Paul Sweeney, it's sort of a euro that wants to have it both ways. They're guarding against weak tempered economic growth. And yet they're trying to set the, the template for higher inflation. Did that surprise you that they were so specific about an inflation to come in 2021? Um, no, because we have so many, let's say, distortion also in 2021. Don't, don't forget we have the reversal of the German VAT reduction this year. So that's going to be reversed January next year. So this should push up the inflation forecast. We have the oil price and commodity price development. I must say I was not too concerned. What, what struck me was more the fact that the 2022 inflation forecast remained unchanged at 1.3%. Um, there, if you just would apply the, uh, the technical assumption like the ECB does with, with a stronger euro, it should have normally pushed down the inflation projection. And then this is well, what is a bit the, the odd thing here. So the, the euro not mentioned as a downside risk for growth, only mentioned as a dampening factor for inflation. So the ECB is indeed still trying 
required treating carefully and uh, probably also to keep some yeah. vocal or verbal ammunition left. Paul, you're taking notes on what he just said because Absolutely. I got lost about halfway through. We're about to a 119 on Euro, Paul. Absolutely. So, Carson, <laughs> just give us a sense of what you think the ECB is likely to do over the next uh, 6 to 12 months. What do you think is going to be their strategy here? Strategy here is that have, an, have another one or two months in, in verbal intervention like the guard is trying currently. And then towards the end of the year, I would still see an increase in the, in the QE program, be, be it an increase of the PEPP program, so the pandemic QE, or it could actually even be um, reverting back to the old QE program, uh, which is currently this $20 billion per month. Um, so, but there will be increase. So in order to ensure that the ECB will be actively purchasing bonds at least until the end of 2021, and not as currently envisaged only until it's 2021. Karsten, thank you so much. Karsten Bruski with his chief economist with ING. Ken Hartman runs Wells Fargo Asset Management, their chief investment officer. And within that, he writes notes. And, they're, you know, they're sort of short. They're like the way a CIO, you know, writes yep. Paul. Yep. They're like short, Concise. they're not like a 42-page thematic and thing. That? And he absolutely nails in paragraph two what all of us have to focus on, which is the G and the R. And the bottom line is with this fiscal ginormity that we're doing, Ken, and good morning, is we've got to get the growth rate to sustain above some form of interest rate. Discuss that. Well, it, it's very important that the um, uh, growth rate is above the real rate of interest. Um, it's the way we can grow out of our debt problem. So uh, the Fed is very um, focused on keeping the real rate very low so we can grow our way out. Um, the problem will be whether that, in fact, will happen. And then the other thing that I'm very interested in is if it does happen, do we then get inflation? This is really important, and Paul, I have to apologize. I was out front on Ken Leon, who will join us in a bit, uh, with Michael Corbett. So I send apologies to Kirk. And, you know, Kirk, as Paul knows, I'm not focused because the Red Sox have the worst record in the American League. Paul, <laughs> save me. I will save you, Tom. So, <clears throat> Kirk, it's interesting here. We, we're hearing uh, Madame Lagarde this morning again uh, mentioning uh, kind of the, the need to keep uh, liquidity into the marketplace. What do you think the read-through will be? Uh, for the U.S. Federal Reserve as a parse, kind of what they're hearing out of the, our European friends today? Well, I think the Federal Reserve would be very pleased to see that. Um, they're following in line with the Federal Reserve. And just the amount of stimulus is enormous. The money supply in the U.S. year over year is up 20% or more. And um, I think that they will be uh, very pleased to see that. Pleased enough uh, that, again, I think the the Fed has done its job. I think most market participants would say they were early, they were firm, they messaged uh, very clearly their intent. Now eyes are turning back to Washington, D.C., and there's much less clarity coming out of Washington as it relates to stimulus. How do you think uh, those in Congress that are pointing to more stimulus may think about it, given what we're seeing out of Europe and uh, out of the U.S.? Well, we clearly need more fiscal stimulus. The uh, central banks are, uh, so to speak, pretty much out of ammo. So I think the things that we're all watching is, you know, can that continue? Um, the other thing I think that we're all focused on, obviously, is uh, whether there's going to be a second wave, so to speak, of the virus. And, you know, I'm very concerned, as is everyone, about <clears throat> the winter. So 
you know, we'll have to see how this yeah. plays out. But um, fiscal stimulus is very important. This is really important, Kirk. Folks, I mentioned this earlier on television. Barry Eichengreen, writing for Project Syndicate. I put it out on Twitter. This is, of course, the uh, economic historian of the University of Berkeley and uh, UC California at Berkeley. And, Kirk, he absolutely agrees with you that we're going into a period that maybe will not be as medically traumatic but will be economically traumatic than what we've seen in the past six months. How is Wells Fargo steeled for that in investment management? Well, I think you have to be cautious here. Uh, clearly, uh, the um, markets are, are betting on a very strong recovery in 2021, and um, I think it's prudent to hedge your uh, bet a bit. The thing that's very interesting to me is the disparity between growth and value. I've never seen uh, this disparity before. You have uh, growth 3,900 points ahead of value, value you know, is down nine uh, on the large caps, and growth is up something like uh, 25, 30%. So on a lot of these uh, mega tech names. So I think that gap has to close. So my view would be I'd be cautious about the mega techs. I think they've had their run. They obviously will do well in a low rate environment because they've got good earning streams. But um, to really see these markets uh, sustain and continue to move, you've got to see the value sectors come back. So, Kirk, again, we talk about the big tech names driving this market, and you know some market participants, uh, namely myself among them, uh, are concerned about the lack of breath within the equity market. How concerned are you about that, or can we just shrug it off given where we are in terms of low interest rates? Well, I don't think you can shrug it off, and uh, what we're looking at is uh, other areas of growth. So I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding that it's only the mega tech names. Uh, there are a lot of other good growth names. And, uh, you know, look at uh, many of your uh, guests that come on the program. So there are many other um, uh, companies that have good growth, and they aren't necessarily the, uh, the mega growth. And that's where we're really looking at. All right. So, Kirk, if someone's in the triple all leverage cash fund yeah, and, they're, and they're looking to kind of <laughs> wedge themselves into the market here, where should they be looking? Well, I looked uh, internationally. I think what's very interesting is the dollar. And my view is that the dollar, and it already has, is starting to weaken. So I think there are a lot of opportunities internationally. Uh, anytime uh, you see a mess, you want to look at that. So I think Europe right now is a bit of a mess. And I think that uh, Europe has value. Um, I think that uh, Asia has value. Uh, you've seen China rebound. So, um, you know, we will get through this. And um, I think you want to look internationally. Uh, that's fascinating to me. Let's 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 call it this. I mean, Nestle is uh, first of all out of Switzerland, so it's in some ways not Europe, and it's amazing the discount Kirk Hartman of the PE of Nestle, call it twenty five ish, versus so many of its equivalencies here at thirty ish. I mean, it, that it, it's tangible, isn't it? Well, very much so. And if you look at the P.E. ratios of Europe or uh, Asia versus the U.S., uh, it's a lot less. So, um, again, that gets to I look at two things. I think the growth uh, value uh, gap is going to close. And I think that with a weaker dollar, uh, Europe and Asia have value. Interesting, Kirk. I mean, would you go so far as to consider emerging markets? I know there's a, a lot of discussion around when people should really start taking a look there. Well, emerging markets uh, uh, are very much dependent on China. And I think China got the message that they can't uh, depend for a lot of reasons on the U.S. supply chain. So 
Um, yeah. What's interesting to me is China is really diversifying. You look at the great companies in Korea and Japan and Taiwan, <clears throat> and it's very clear that uh, China is going to build its own semiconductor industry and chips. And uh, that's where I would look to value is the extended uh, periphery mm-hmm. uh, outside of um, uh, um, Japan, excuse me, China. Okay, Kirk Hartman with us, folks. We've got to let him go or the market will go down. Kirk Hartman with Wells Fargo. Thank <laughs> you. Right now, we want to get to this important interview. The Johnson family runs Fidelity, and they've always done inspired hiring around the street to bring in the troops with the Boston bread. They did that two years ago with Vadim Zlotnikov, who was definitive in Alliance Bernstein. If you were on the street, you had to read the quantitative and market uh, letters and research pieces from uh, Mr. Zlotnikov. He joins us now with Fidelity, their institutional asset management uh, president. Vadim, the rules have changed. Fidelity's lived it. Schwab's lived it. Everybody else has lived it. I want you to first discuss the overtrading disease we, are, we have right now. Are you in Fidelity facilitating an overtrading disease that will lead to losses and ill return? Look, Fidelity has always been about long term. And, and, and you know as well as I do, 85 to 90 percent of the investment outcomes comes from the underlying product design, not from the trading. And the emphasis has always been on making sure you have the appropriate product design to achieve the particular uh, investment goals. Uh, very importantly in your heritage, and this goes back to the great Paul Hondros as well, Fidelity has had a mandate to be on prospectus. What is working right now in terms of total return, narrow on prospective investment or a more broader tone? The, the last 10 years have been very much about a very narrow market. A 60-40 product that emphasized U.S. equity at the expense of international equities has delivered very, very strong results. The key issue is, is this going to change? And we believe that it will. And that there are a number of drivers uh, that are conspiring to argue for significantly greater degree of diversification as we move forward. That is going to be, we believe, a critical decision. And just to be absolutely clear, I'm not speaking on behalf of Fidelity, but rather on on behalf of my group and the economic research team that developed the paper. Vadim, build on that a little bit. A move away from the 60-40 because it's the 40 that has got a ton of attention in the last month or so. Can you speak to that, Vadim? Absolutely. So, look, one of the basic premises we have is that you want to invest on the basis of something that is at least knowable or at least very likely about the future. And the one thing that is very likely uh, is that the levels of debt in the economy relative to GDP are going to continue to escalate. Demographics, policy, everything is conspiring to make it happen. The issue is, and this is where really the big question is, is that going to drive inflation? And we believe it will. That is a huge departure from where we've been in the past. Not only will it uh, drive inflation, it will also alter the type of uh, uh, assets that are likely to outperform in that environment. Okay. So what's likely to outperform? So there are a number of things. So first of all, one of the interesting things, if you look back at before even 2003, Luxury goods had the same essential inflation as the CPI. Following 2003, and if you remember, the aspirational consumer, using your house as a checking account, all of those cliches that we've had drove massive uh, inflation in luxury goods. Likewise, we've seen asset inflation. The future inflation is going to be somewhat driven by the policy. 
For example, to the extent we start to see policies aimed at wealth redistribution, narrowing the income inequality gap, many of the areas that have high elasticity to the lower end consumer spending are likely to see inflation. They've been left for dead, they're undervalued, and we do think some of those could outperform over a long term. This is not a one-year forecast. Vadim, this will be a question for you at Alliance Bernstein, and certainly with you at Serious Money at Fidelity. When we read about the gamma whale, when we read about the NASDAQ whale, when we read about fancy derivative strategies, it it destroys trust on the street. How do we regain the trust on the street if everybody's trying to outdo SoftBank of Japan? Yeah, look, there, there will always be investors that are interested in shorter horizon trading that believe they might have a point of view on things like gamma or delta. Honestly, that, that is a relatively small minority. I do see, you know, it is happening. It is, I think, a function of significant liquidity we see in the market as well, as well as low interest rates. So there is a propensity <clears throat> to try to seek out incremental investments. I really want to keep coming back to the point. If you really believe the statement that 85 to 90 percent of your outcome is about product design, that's where people should spend 85 to 90 percent of their time. Vadim, I just got an email in. All anybody wants to know is how does Will Danoff do it? What's the Danoff message that has made Contrafund do that for all these years? Hard work and natural talents. Those, those are generally pretty good recipe for success. He's done a remarkable job. It's truly, truly inspiring. I believe it's his 30th year at Fidelity this year, so it's, it's, it's been a remarkable run. It's been a remarkable run. I want you to take us back to George Vanderheide and Jeff Vinnick and the rest of them, who from time to time would make bets in the bond markets. Are you equity guys using zero-coupon bonds and such to make big bets now on fixed income, or is that from the past? I think that's mostly from the past. I think, look, there, there are so many products at Fidelity. There may be somebody doing uh, uh, investing in some bonds, but no, that's within the group that I run, which is really what I'm uh, most familiar with, uh, we, we don't do that now. It's mostly multi-asset products, balanced products that are aimed at satisfying a particular investment outcome, particular regulatory requirement, particular tax requirement. Vadim, fantastic to catch up. Good to see you again. Vadim Zlotnikov there, Fidelity Institutional Asset Management President. We move on to the depression of Washington. We can always do that with Henrietta Trez, uh, Veda Partners Director of Economic Policy uh, Research. I guess the battle over the stimulus, Henrietta, is sort of like the Boston Red Sox. It's not going well. My major question is, There's a huge perception among our guests of the urgency for Washington to act. Does Washington have any of that urgency? No, they really don't. Um, You can see that as far back as July 31st when the unemployment insurance benefits expired and nothing has changed since. We passed the August 8th date with the PPP and here we are um, over a month after that event even and we don't have a bill that can pass the Senate even with just the Republican conference. So today there's a vote scheduled. We'll see if it actually happens, but it will fail and um, We'll see what happens after that. Not much is my expectation. What are the consequences of no stimulus bill? 
Unfortunately, the consequences for the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are good for the political side. Bad, obviously, for the state of further stimulus and the potential for more unemployment checks and other fiscal stimulus for the investors or markets. Um, but for both parties, I see benefits on the political side. For Republicans, they get to get back to their roots, buck Speaker Pelosi, which is always a good time, um, and appease their conservative base who's deficit conscious and doesn't want to stimulate the economy with another two trillion dollar package, which is what this eventually would have to kind of be. On the Democrat side, they can say Republicans aren't understanding the severity of the crisis. President Trump's off, you know, talking to Bob Woodward instead of actually engaging on the coronavirus. It suits their narrative going into the election, and then they can pass a massive stimulus under Biden if he wins the administration in 2021 in the first quarter. Um, that's what we've heard from them for a while now, and that's what I expect will ultimately come to pass. Henrietta, why are there so many you know, citizens of the U.S. still undecided who they'll vote for in November? Is this because they have questions on policies or something else? Um, I think that's interesting. There's a lot of late deciders. We, do, we definitely see that every cycle. What I would focus on right now is the fact that this cycle is different from 2016 and that instead of the independents who make up those undecided voters but uh, going for Trump at the end of the day, three to one, they're now going for Joe Biden. So the undecided sliver has shrunk to about 6% of the population um, mm -hmm. of the overall 25% piece of the pie that is independent voters. Three to one, they're going to, pres uh, to uh, Vice President Biden. So so that really bodes poorly for President Trump. That's where elections are made, whether you're in a swing state um, or nationwide. And that's, I think, why you're seeing the Biden polls nationally come in at plus seven, plus eight, plus nine, plus ten. It's because he's already captured those independent voters. So even if President Trump were able to win 50 percent of the remaining undecideds, he would still lose the race, including the battlegrounds. Um, so the Biden team feels pretty good about that. I think the Republicans are reading that and saying we really need to dig in, make sure we don't pass another $2 trillion stimulus package and look like tax and spend Democrats, and we can go into this election at least with our base galvanized, which was not what they had in late March after they passed the CARES Act. So this is full, you know, cover your butt mode in campaign cycles. Um, Henrietta, d d does the undecided voter then, I mean, are they easier to get their minds to be changed from now until November? Um, the undecided voter is probably not particularly politically engaged, so all of this news cycle stuff you're seeing about Bob Woodward or Dr. Fauci or um, what's going on with President Trump and his Nobel Peace Prize yesterday, all that stuff is really going to play in, um, I would say, like the second and third week of October. Oftentimes that last remaining eighth of the population decides how they're going to break in the last seven days of the election. So we'll really have to see. I imagine there will be a couple more news cycles before then, maybe like 50 more news cycles between now and then. Um, and they're going to really make their decision at the very last minute. You would assume that the economy was going to make their decision for them. Um, so the administration will try to play up the next month's unemployment data. Um, <laughs> Democrats will try to focus on the coronavirus and try to really hammer members home, uh, those voters home with um, just pounding them with ads. And that's where you look at how much cash on hand does the Biden campaign have versus Trump. Obviously, Joe Biden had a record-breaking haul last month. We'll see if he can keep that up, but he's mm -hmm. um, in a very good place to essentially convince those last-minute voters at the last minute in those battlegrounds. Uh, Henrietta, quickly here, what ads work? Do TV ads work, or are we finally beyond that, where it's all digital all the time? 
Digital ads are definitely where the Trump administration is. You've seen them focus on that. They almost exclusively go to Facebook now, and they d ignore all the polling data and aggressively saying, that's not even what you should be watching. Just go straight to Facebook, see what the enthusiasm is. That's where we're going to get our base. That's where we're going to turn out. There are more um, non-voting white individuals in the United States that didn't even turn out in 2016. Facebook is telling us that, so we're just going to focus on advertising in Facebook. On the Democrat side, you see a much more um, even hyper-localized type of ad where they are working through individual text messages. They have a robust um, grassroots game dealing with that. The Act Blue uh, app obviously helps with that. Um, but they're also doing the generic TV ads, especially pounding mm -hmm. Trump in those yeah. um, swing states. Mm -hmm. Henrietta, it's been great. Great brief. Thank you so much. Henrietta Trey is with us uh, with VEDA uh, Partners. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.